Hi, this is Jonas. This week I sit down with John Thompson to talk about oaks. John has been growing oaks for decades and is my go-to resource for questions about the species. And we got an opportunity to talk about how he keeps his trees looking so good in terms of watering, fertilizer, sunlight, and training. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you are looking to learn about oaks, this will be right on the mark. Where we start this interview with John telling us about his introduction to bonsai on the island of Okinawa, Okinawa in 1970 71. And I was an MP. And not only that, we were armed forces police, which means that we were all over the island, not just on the bases, because the America was, or the United States was uh, actually. Uh, in charge of, of uh, Okinawa at the time, uh-huh. from the Second World War up to about that point. And um, when I'd go out to outlying villages away from the cities, um, a lot of times you would be writing up a report of something that a GI got involved with in that particular place, and occasionally you'd be able to see what their houses were like. And this is where I first saw bonsai in these little houses where they just had very little space in order to devote to something like that. And they would do what they could with it. And these trees were just intriguing. You just <laughs> look at them and all of a sudden you're saying, yeah, I, I've seen that on our way over here. I saw this tree. And yet this is in a little bonsai pot. And some of them were more crude. Some of them were more refined, depending on the people. And and again, it's a reflection of what people put into it. But this was really intriguing. Well, if you're in the military uh, and you're living with 65 other guys in a in a uh, barracks, not not the <laughs> ideal situation for growing bonsai. So I I sort of pigeonholed this whole idea until I got back to the United States. And then after I moved to uh, California um, and uh, eventually got married, I, I decided that, you know, I needed some hobbies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I remembered the bonsai. And so I uh, looked it up and uh, found the Midori Bonsai Club here in town and went over there. And they were very nice. You know, they were very welcoming. And I think that's one of the things that all of the clubs need to do is to almost assign somebody to help that new mm-hmm. person feel like he's included. And I certainly did. Uh, at the time, Kathy Shaner was in, in the club and a whole of, a lot of other people and whatnot. And um, I really was intrigued by the entire process of doing it because mm-hmm. I didn't know about the mechanics and all of the rest of the stuff that goes into doing these trees. And what I found in Bonsai was that it took something that I took for granted and made me start really looking and seeing what I was looking at mm-hmm. and really concentrating on that to the point where, for instance, I'd be on vacation and instead of trying to get from point A to point B and just as fast as I possibly could, I'd be watching everything that was going on as I was looking out the window and probably shouldn't have been looking out quite as much as I was <laughs> since I was driving. But what it does is it 
it forces you to take a look at things and you're actually critiquing nature as you're going through. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that most of nature is kind of, you know, ugly trees, trees that aren't really developed. But occasionally you see something that is either offset well because it's up against the skyline or you're seeing something that um, really has an intriguing angle to it. It's something out of the ordinary and it's well formed. And you look at that and you say, oh my God. And it's it's one of those moments where you start getting tingles up your back and you <laughs> you see something and, and you I guess that's a part of realization of something that you didn't notice before. Right. That the excitement of the whole thing of, of just looking at that and you're saying, oh, my God, that would be so cool. And then you start trying to figure out how you can do it. And that's where, you know, some of the technical information that you get from uh, bonsai clubs and right. you know, beginner stuff and everything comes in. And that's when I really started to look at oaks is when I was on oh. trips like that because all of a sudden I saw something in oaks that was totally different than domestic trees that you see in, in uh, front yards yeah. and, and uh, wherever it happens to be it's just it's something that and I found that bonsai for me is a way of getting that, that tingle, that thrill and it's repeatable Mm. With each new tree, you get to you get that kind of a feeling, and it's it's just an exciting type of thing, which is what's kept me in it all these years. Now I probably started right around 1980. Uh -huh. I was married in 70, uh, uh, 74, and right around that's when I was starting to go to conventions and 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 do that type of thing. Um, but I learned from so many different people. You know, I have such an eclectic kind of perspective as far as trees are concerned. But I found that each person, and they're not all equally talented and whatnot, but they all have ways of explaining something. And maybe they weren't particularly good in one particular area, but they connected. What they said connected with what I thought was really going on with the tree. And we were describing the same things. It's just that hearing it in a certain way sometimes all of a sudden gives you that aha yeah. moment, you know, that where you can really grasp what's going on there. And so it's worthwhile listening to almost anything. I'm still waiting for that anything. feeling. Hmm? I'm still waiting for that feeling. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's more of a, I've seen this before. And what you just said describes better for me what that really is than what I've heard from other people on the same subject. Uh -huh. They may have been great in, in right. a different area, but, you know, you rang my bell on this particular uh, subject. So I really, I like that about uh, bonsai. There's so many different perspectives and there's so many different people. And the new people coming out, you know, have fresh, uh, you know, outlooks on this entire, entire thing. And... Um, I have my own, but it's going to be different than right. yours or anybody else's. And anyone, whether that's good or bad, that's that's hard. Was anyone teaching California natives back then, or was it mostly Japanese species? Mostly Japanese species, yeah. with the exception of California junipers, right. because we had the John Nakas and the, and the Harrys and, and whatnot, Harry Hurrahs. And, um, well, and, you know, Ben Oki and, and all kinds of people, and, and Mazi Mazumi from up here, mm -hmm. and and uh, Warren Hill and, you know, just a whole ton of different people. Um, mostly what you heard of at that point was from Southern California. Right. And they grew up, and I think to a large extent, 
after World War II, and and certainly John Knock was the epitome of this. You know, he he really kind of developed things and really developed them very nicely to give people simple instructions on what to do. And unfortunately, I think people think of those as you know um, the Ten Commandments of of what you have right. to do. And I think you have to discover what you are going to take in as a rule and then how you interpret that for each particular tree. Um, and it's hard to know how to interpret things when you're new because you don't have the criteria with which to apply your own yeah. take. You don't know what any take is, let alone yours at that early time. Yeah, and that's the neat thing about that is that if you get those basics down, it's like anything. You're learning a language, you're doing anything. You've got to get certain basics down before you can appreciate that, okay, there's a level of rightness to what you just said, but it's mm -hmm. not complete. Right. And there's other things that we can look into, and, and that's kind of the fun of, of bonsai. Anyway, the oak portion of this whole thing is because everywhere where I would go, and pretty much everywhere in California, you're about 10 minutes away from, at any point, from an oak tree. Whether it's up in the mountains in your, in your uh, uh, black oaks or, or some of the scrub oaks that even go up higher than that, or whether you're right down in the chaparral and, and the, uh, the uh, kind of the uh, bushy, shrubby kind of uh, oaks that you see uh, actually in the mountains as well as in the uh, uh, coastal areas. Mm -hmm. And it, they're all over the place. All you have to do is look. And every time you go on vacation, you're looking for, you know, just the possibility that maybe there's a cool oak out there. We took a vacation back to um, the East Coast, and we wanted to go to uh, Charlotte. Oh, uh -huh. And we wanted to go to, um, well, I'll think of it in a few minutes. Anyway, on the way to one of these vacations, we stopped off at a place called uh, John's Island. And they have a thing there called the Angel Oak. And this is a southern live oak. And it is huge. When we came upon this particular tree, um, I was wondering where it was. You know, I, did, I had read about it, and I, I just couldn't see an oak around there. All I saw was this brush. Well, the brush was the outlying part of it. Once you drove into this area and actually saw it, this thing uh, occupies the better part of half an acre. Was this one you had a photo of? Yes. In your presentation? Yes. Yeah. I had my wife underneath underneath this tree. Yeah. There are it's smaller it's bigger than a large house. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. It's huge. And um, the way if you notice what an oak does that a lot of other trees don't, is that they will send out a lateral branch and they will send it out and it will meander. In other words, it's not a straight branch. It's not a redwood branch coming off of uh -huh. there. It's got all the movement, all the cranky uh, type of movement that you could possibly want, but it hovers above the ground and it goes way out there and it's huge and it's heavy. Yeah. How does it keep up? How does it stay up? Yeah. I have no idea. But this is just one of the characteristics of many of the trees that you see out there. Yeah. And the movement, the the diversity of the whole thing is just so exciting to me. I mean, just just <laughs> love those trees. They're just they're just unbelievable. And and you start to note things that seem to work for most of these, and you try to incorporate them into trees. And then you learn about trees when you really get down to it. You don't duplicate a tree. You never duplicate a tree. You duplicate a pattern 
and a thought of what you, you see in a tree and you try to incorporate that into your work because you can't possibly replicate all of the trillions of leaves on a particular tree. But you have to approximate that in trying to get the, the movement and everything that goes on. And it's not a matter of necessarily wiring. Right. Wiring uh, gives you an initial area that, that uh, you can start a branch off on. But you don't want to take a very long branch, wire the whole thing out, and give it lots of ups and downs and sideway cranks and whatnot. Because in, in essence, this is just a kind of a looping uh, type of branch that you're going to see. What you see in nature is years and years in, say, um, three feet of growth on a, on a fully mature tree years and years of growth that gives the actual bend of a branch. Right. This is broken here, new shoot starts, broken here, new shoot starts. So I've come to the conclusion that building a tree is really a matter of managing arcs in a undulating branch and not going too many arcs down before you cut it back and wait for that new bud that's going to come somewhere on that arc and then change directions a little bit. Yep. And the way we can have some effect on that initial part that we are wiring is we can vary the radius of that arc, the regularity of that arc, and mm -hmm. the initial direction of that arc. Right. But we're not going to give a sequence of those arcs because likely the characteristic, just the strength of the branch and the strength of the wire is going to lend itself toward fairly predictable or repeated shapes on a longer length. On the talk that I give uh, on, on uh, oak bonsai, I have one of the slides, and it's just, you can see more or less the silhouette of a particular branch that's in there. Uh -huh. But you'll notice that the, at each, this particular branch from the trunk out to, you know, it's probably out 10 feet or something like that. Each one of the changes of directions is a different angle, different direction, different thickness, and uh, it's not always the longest inner nodes are uh, of the of the movement are uh, closest to the trunk. Sometimes it varies, and in the middle of it, you'll have a long section, and then it'll start working again. Right. And a lot of this is environmental type of things. The advantage we have in bonsai over growing something in the ground, which would take years and years to accomplish, mm. is that we can compress time. We can compress time by the things that we do with the tree if we learn how it grows and the timing of what we can do and when we can do it during the year to, to make this work. And we utilize such things as wiring, which is a... Uh, you know, kind of a universal thing in bonsai. The first thing that they tell you, wire every branch. Well, you don't have to do that. Right. But initially, you need to at least give some direction to where you're trying to get this tree to grow. Yep. And uh, it's a combination of that. It's a combination of all the things that go into a bonsai, which includes fertilization, watering, that's kind of soil that it's in, um, taking care of any uh, pathogens and, and bugs that are going after it, you know, all kinds of different things. But when you can manipulate this in such a way, you still come up uh, with the conclusion that this is a partnership. There's a partnership between you and the plant because you do something to the plant 
In right. other words, you have a tree that you're you're going to work on. You do a little cutback. You do a little bit of wiring. You do a little bit of defoliating or whatever you're going to do. And then you have to give the plant its chance to react to that. And from that, you can then take the next step. But it's a back and forth and back and forth type of thing with the tree. And that's what's kind of intriguing about it. You're, you're, you've got two species talking to each other. <laughs> it's a relationship. Yeah. And I like the way you say it like that. On one level, bonsai is extremely simple. We can only do two things to trees. We can remove growth or redirect growth. We think that we make trees, but the trees make themselves. We're creating conditions and encouraging different things. Or, but ultimately, we're taking growth that's there and putting it somewhere else, pointing it in another direction, or we're removing it. That's yeah. kind of it. The rest is just water, fertilizer, sunshine. Yeah, and we're either um, strengthening the tree or we're weakening it. Yeah. Because of those operations. If we're fertilizing and we're giving it a little bit of extra stuff, it yep. pumps it up and it, and it goes a little bit faster. If we want that to slow down, because of, ultimately you don't want it to grow at the same speed during its entire life. You want it, to, right. you want it to direct the flow of energy where you want it. And also understanding that every time that you're out there working on your trees, this is a not a botany, it's a, it's a arboricultural class that yes. you're doing with the tree. And you're actually, this is a practical, practical exam on what, what you do with a tree. And you learn about the operations of the tree and, and how to improve things. And you also know that occasionally you do something wrong and the tree tells you. Yeah, branch dies more than occasionally. More than occasionally, yeah, more more than we would hope for. So you're really delving into, you're going back to your botany class or your biology class in high school. Yeah, and a lot of the information that you thought was absolutely worthless and that you would never get involved in, uh, such simple things as uh, in water, you know, and and the adhesion and the cohesion of water. Well, those are great things for a test, you know, in, yeah. <laughs> in high school. But when would you ever use that? We use it all the time in, in, in bonsai, trying to figure out what's going on with the soil, wh what kind of soil to use to retain, and, and how water actually drains through. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. And that's the neat thing is that you never have the complete story. You're always looking for something new. You're always right. learning something new. Well, let's start with that. What... What's your approach to soil on oaks? What have you learned over the years of growing oaks? I've learned that you need to have good water retention, even though in the, in, when they're growing in the ground, it's a much finer soil for the most part, uh, retains water in the areas much, much more than a bonsai soil. Bonsai soil is an artificial way of keeping things growing and trying to control too much, too little water situations in, in, in the soil. And it's not just the water, it's the oxygen, the oxygen level. Uh, roots will not form if there's not oxygen. In an anaerobic situation, they're just not going to grow. Uh, as a matter of fact, you'll get rot. And a lot of times when I'm transplanting something and I'm kind of pulling things up, mm. first thing I'll do to analyze what's going on is I'll sniff the soil. In other words, I'll yeah. get right down there and I'll uh, take a whiff of it. If it smells toxic, you know, uh, like waste, yep. uh, then you know that there's a problem 
probably with that uh, water and you've got rotting roots or something's going on in that soil. It's not good. Yeah, there'll be anaerobic conditions. Yeah. So you, you, you need, as far as soil is concerned, when you're, when you're looking at the, the soil, initially you want to get as much growth as you possibly can. If you're going to get a lot of growth, you need a lot of oxygen to, to, to actually fuel that entire thing, which means that the size and, and shape of the soil is probably going to be larger and more aeratable, yep. which means that you, the amount of uh, um, uh, pebbles and, and um, various other components that you use, whether it's lava or whether it's... Uh, uh, actually shale, any, anything that you might use on that, um, or lava rock and, and whatnot, it's, it needs to give more oxygen to that area so that it will grow qu quicker. You need to water it more often because it's going to dry out more at that point, but you need that oxygen level to really be pumped in order to get really good growth. As it re matures or as you put it into smaller amount of soil, and you want it to slow down because you don't want these long inner nodes. You don't need to pump up the base right. of the tree. Then you put it into smaller particulates, uh, something that will hold a little bit more more uh, moisture in it because that tends to slow down growth Right. when you have smaller stuff. Yeah, I found that if you're trying to rescue a sick oak, you can go, I mean, up to 100% pumice just about. 80% pumice and fairly large particles. Yes. For a large tree, three-eighths inch particle, almost all pumice. There'll be some old soil in the middle there somewhere, but that seems to be the best way to just get them a kickstart. And if you give them a year of that and some heat, you won. It's like yes. that seems to be the medicine for them is mm -hmm. giving them that drier soil. But that's exactly right. If you want to get that refined growth, then you want to start getting it into, I think, for a healthy mid-development oak, I might be more between 30 and 50% Akadama, something like that. And you can do more depending, but mm. also where I live, it depends on the weather. Here you get lots of heat, and so it's a slightly different situation. Well, I think also, depending on the size of the tree and the size of the pot that you have and the depth of the pot. Yeah. And I think there's the, there's the key is the depth of the pot. pot. A pot of soil has a certain mass to it. And that mass is probably the same whether it's deep and narrow or whether it's wide, wide open. In other words, more like a landscape and very right. thin. Uh, but the way that water, we brought in cohesion and adhesion before, the way that water works is that no matter what kind of, how, what the depth is, it gets down to a certain point and gravity will take the water down to a certain point. And then the combination of this adhesion and cohesion, the cohesion being that water sticks to itself mm -hmm. and it stays stays uh, united. And the, uh, and the adhesion is that it'll hang on to the soil that you have in, in the pot. Right. Okay, but that level stays the same. And if it's a really thin one, your actual amount of soil that has that water in it is much higher relative to the depth of the than uh, in, a, in a shallow pot than it is in a in a taller pot. The problem is is that once that water lets go and it's gone, there's no reserves. There's nothing there to. And that's one reason why we tend to see oaks in deeper pots because it is harder to keep them happy in those shallower pots. Yes, but just is. looking through your garden and uh -huh. folks that want to look will have some photos up. 
you have some really healthy oaks in shallow pots. Uh-huh. Does that just take more careful watering in that case? Yes, it does, and and it and it also depends at what time of year and what operations that you're doing at that time of year. Yeah. Different times of year, um, the water uptake is is much higher than at at, at other times. When a deciduous oak is, is does not have any of its leaves during the winter time. It really doesn't require a whole lot going on, but right. because it transpires, because it it releases water through its leaf system, yeah. and it does a certain amount of it through the bark, but yeah. uh, most of it is, comes through the leaf system. Um, you really have to watch the water level, and I found that if you allow a deciduous oak or a deciduous anything doesn't yeah. have to be an oak, but it can be about any any tree, if you allow it to. Uh, get to the point where it's really struggling to live, the first thing it's going to do is let go of things. It creates a preponderance of, of that happening again much more easily. In other words, once once it starts to droop, it's very easy for it to droop the next time. So you really want to keep it from getting uh, to that point where everything goes limp on it and all of your young type of growth is just dangling there and it, it starts to suck in and and just uh, collapse on itself and that actually brings up a good point because i've noticed that when oaks are in their active growth phase you have new shoots elongating they actually wilt very easily the soil can just about still be wet and you'll see wilt on them you don't see that when the leaves have fully hardened off the cuticle is mature Mm -hmm. and it always makes me wonder is the tree suffering but not showing it or is the tree not suffering as much because it doesn't have that tender growth okay well let's go back to high school uh, biology and <clears throat> whatnot what's going on with a shoot that is first coming out mm-hmm. is that uh, it does not have a vascular system it has a one-way system it's and that's push, a, yeah. and it's a push system yeah and it's fueled by what's behind it and what's behind it is water and and uh, nutrients that it has and the buildup of the the tissue in the buds which are just waiting at certain times to explode and to, and to grow. Yeah. It doesn't have the ability to have that back and forth. In it's other not words, that recirculating system. The circulating system. system. And that comes when you start getting wood formation and the xylem and the, and the phloem differentiating yeah. to the point where it actually has that ebb and flow of, of energy. And uh, when it's first coming out, it doesn't have the ability to to really fire itself. There's no regulation. There's no yeah, regulation there. That's right. And remember, most of this stuff, we, we tend to anthropomorphize uh, because it's easy to explain, yeah. uh, you know, trees. But it has a hormone system in it that regulates most of the stuff. And it, it is responsive to things that are going on with the tree. And these hormones are triggered because of drought, because of uh, pathogens, because of all kinds of things to protect or to grow or to conserve or do a lot of things in the tree. And it's a fascinating, again, you Mm -hmm. never know it all. And you're just, you're, you're trying to describe what you see going on with the tree. But uh, again, you can get a lot from that high school class that you took if you go back to it. Assuming we had a, a good class in the first place. Well, it, and that's true. And not yeah, only that, but the, the textbooks that I had starting off don't even, they're, they're rudimentary 
from what's what's going on now and what experimentation and what right. what observation has shown is is really so so it's it's just a fun the whole aspect of this thing it keeps you young because you're always learning something and and it's it's teaching you humility because the things that you do really come crashing around your own your own self so yeah i find it's harder to keep people invested in bonsai over the long term if they take themselves too seriously exactly exactly and you got bonsai doesn't do well in that case well and expectations in bonsai the expectation i still i still plant i i'm very optimistic i plant acorns and i do that every year and i have trees that i go to and then I learn new things about them. But I know that all those acorns that are out there, only one or 2% of those things are gonna really give me a decent, a really nice tree. The rest of them are gonna fall by the wayside at some point because they decided to give up or they decided I wasn't giving them what they needed to, to, right. to live. Or they just, for some reason, just died. More reason or don't to, even look good. That's right, more reason to cherish the good ones yes and that's that's why uh you need to do a whole lot of them to get those through the various stages it's got to go in order to become a nice bonsai uh -huh. so you really if you're going to be getting involved in this there's a lot of frustration to it it's not just uh, you know a lot of people will buy a new tree and if it's a nice tree they struggle to keep it going um and some people don't even know the rudimentaries that you got to water them you yes. know, and you have to water them on a regular basis. And the watering is not just a casual thing that you do. It is a very important part of this, this, this system. You give them too much water at the wrong time, and you can get root rots. You can get all kinds of problems going on with yeah. this tree. You can drown it. Um, you don't give it enough, the same thing happens. You have to kind of look at what the tree is doing and that dictates what you're going to do as far as the amount of water, the frequency of water, and, and what you put in the water. Right. Or don't put in, the, or take out of the water, I should Have say. Have you found that oaks care at all about when you water them, or is it more about, meaning in terms of times of day, or is it more about when they need water, you water? It's when they need water. I, I have a lot of uh, coast live oaks. I have a lot of um, cork oaks and whatnot, and they're, they're pretty uh, forgiving, but... Each one of those trees is not exactly like the next one in the line. They're Got just right. different. Yeah. It's like us. We're, you know, we kind of look the same. We both have ears and stuff like that. But we, uh, things go differently. Yeah. Yeah. So. so tell me, what is the relevance of the number 144 to oaks? Ah, we're getting into 144. Okay. When an oak... Well, first of all, when a, when, when a tree buds, all the information that is going to be included in the shoot that it uh, develops from that is already present. Everything is there. It's just eensy-weensy. It's just tiny little stuff that's inside there. But the whole formula for uh, creating an oak is, is in there. It's just that as it releases, it releases the information, probably hormonally, to each part of this so that it grows in a certain way. Okay, which means that all of the leaves that are going to come out in that first flush are going to be arranged in one way or another. 
The typical ways that we see is like on a boxwood, you have opposite budding where you have one pair of leaves that come off to the side. And if you're looking at it, then one comes from the bottom and the, and the, and the top at the same place. It goes a little farther out and side by side again. You get that type of thing. You also have alternating. You have alternating where you have one leaf on one side and then one leaf on the other side. Good example of that would be a, an elm. An elm is a perfect, perfect one for that because it's almost all the way down the chute. You see that's left, right, left, right, left, right type of thing. And oak is arranged a little bit differently, but more on the side of the, the uh, alternating type. It is an alternating type. It's just that it has a way of presenting those leaves, which the oak has developed because it allows it to succeed in whatever environment it's in. And the way that is, is that from one leaf to the next leaf in the same position, in other words, let's say the top of the, of the shoot or the twig that you're getting, there are five leaves that, that uh, intervene between that first one and that uh, next one in the same position. And there are bringing to the 144 is the number of degrees that each leaf comes off at that point uh, from the first one. So it goes one leaf on top, and then it goes more than more than a quarter of the way around to the next leaf, 144 degrees, and then the next one is 144 degrees, and the next one is 144. And this seems like oh my God, this was this was on a test I once took, and it means nothing to me, but. When you're selecting things, when you're actually looking at a tree and you're trying to, you've gotten past the point where you have the branching, the basic branch or primary and secondary branching that you want. And now you want to get away from actually doing wiring on this tree and you want to allow it to, to grow the way you want, but in the direction that you want without having to wire. You can select the area on that shoot that you cut back to and it will send out a shoot in that position yeah. just the way that you want to. The, the way that the tree has developed is that this allows all these leaves to grow without interfering with each other and getting the maximum amount of sunlight uh, uh, during the day to, to uh, power one of the largest and uh, most diverse trees that you're, you're going to see. And that also tells you another thing is that depending on the position of the uh, branch or the leaves in a particular tree, they're not going to look like each other, even on the same tree. Right. You're going to have different ones when they have full sun exposure. They're going to be uh, thicker and they're going to be uh, uh, slightly smaller than they are on the outside. And the ones that are trapped on the inside are going to broaden out so they can catch any residual light that trickles through the system and finally gets to them. So different parts of the tree are going to give you different, different types of leaves. But this 144 degrees, because shoots come out differently, we discussed this a little bit earlier, but when you have terminal shoots, a lot of times you're going to get that internodal, in other words, from one leaf to another, uh, distances that are going to be widening out. In many of the uh, branches that are shoots that are coming out from farther back in the tree, they aren't getting the same kind of impetus right. that, that that terminal one is. And what happens there is that uh, those five leaves are going to be clustered real close to each other. 
Now, if you're looking to get a very tight uh, little uh, array of, of uh, movement in your shoheen trees, for instance, the little tiny trees, those are the preferable ones to actually cut back to as opposed to cutting a, one that has long inner nodes in it. Right. So you can use what the tree is producing and decide where it's going to come from, and that'll give you an idea of, of what you cut back to. It almost feels like so many of the common species we work on for bonsai are quite rudimentary in what they bring to the table in terms of starting points for styling. Looking down the barrel of a branch on an alternating tree, it's 180, 180, 180, 180. Yeah. And we we'll, we have to twist the branches when we wire if we want to develop more complex mm -hmm. forms. Oaks bake that in, and oaks will always give you downward growing branches, and that's not necessarily a bad thing depending on the movement you're looking no. to develop, whether yeah. in a trunk or a branch. I can remember going to a client's house, different profession, but uh, going to a client's house and they built this house around this tree, around this uh, oh, neat. Uh, huge, huge uh, valley oak. And it was wonderful movement in it, but it had one of the branches and you would never see this past muster with a bonsai teacher uh, had one of the branches that started on one side and went around three quarters of the tree before it actually apexed out and the reason for that or the reason I suppose for that was because there were its openings light openings in mm. certain areas and because it, uh, maybe it broke off in, in, in certain ways it changed directions and occupied a spot that was open that was occupiable let's say yeah and uh, so they are opportunistic from the standpoint of what goes on uh, within their environment and they will jump on any area that they can get sunlight the whole idea is to to grow the tree and to reproduce the tree and to maintain the tree and then it dies you know but in the case of an oak, there are many oaks that have lasted for 500 years. Yeah. So they can be quite old. And Some I, of them in my care haven't lasted a year. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think more than anything, when I think of a word that summarizes oak, it's, you said, opportunistic, or we'll also use advantageous. Yeah, and I think of that in so yeah. many different ways, not only in how the branches develop, but when they put on new growth, how much growth they put on. I've had oaks that in recovering from stressful periods will go up to two years without growing. And then maybe that third year they'll give you these tiny baby leaves. And then maybe in the fourth year you'll get some new leaves. The fifth year it might give you some new shoots that you can work with. They will do what they are prepared to and they teach you a different kind of patience because you don't necessarily know what's around the corner. Or maybe that's just the experience I've had with a bunch of oaks. No, no. each one of them reacts differently to what you're doing, and, and I think you're absolutely right. You don't get the same kind of reaction. You don't get a set pattern of this is going to blow out, this is going to blow out. It blows out when it wants to, but usually that wanting to has to do with something going on within the interior hormonal structure of this, and I go back to hormones, but it almost has to be something along in those lines. Uh, that activates in certain oaks and certain circumstances that doesn't in, in another oak. Right. That isn't quite built that way. But, yeah. Um, 
But that connects to something you said that really intrigued me, both before we started recording as well as a little earlier, is you mentioned there are some timings that are very important when working on oaks, especially when it comes to mid-season pruning. So oh, yeah. Tell us. Okay, so the yearly uh, game with this is that typically in the wintertime and the late fall, it's gathering energy that we know is going to explode when uh, it considers itself in the springtime. Yeah. doesn't uh, adhere necessarily to the uh, calendar year, but it it's more or less in the spring, uh, late winter. And what happens is that it sends out all this energy. And again, it's all outgoing until it forms this this uh, uh, vascular system, which is a two-way system, and allows the energy to come back in and replenish what it what is taken out. Um, but as it's as it's uh, growing, it starts off as uh, being a very succulent type of growth, very soft, very tender, uh, very manipulatable, and very easy to break. Yeah, uh, and it's it's not a time frame in which you're supposed to, you really can do much to the tree other than pinching it back but then you're you're just you're not taking advantage of a lot of what you can do with a tree if you do that once we get past that point once it starts to harden off and by hardening off I'm really talking about the color changes it turns to uh, from a light kind of uh, uh, a green a spring type of green and it goes darker and it actually hardens off the leaves themselves, where they were very succulent, as I was saying before, yeah. and, and immature type of things. They start to form a coating to them. They start to get a little, <coughs> excuse me, stiffness. Yeah. And they start to elongate, and they get to a point, and they harden off. And this is really what hardening is. This is when they're actually returning some something on the investment that was yeah. made initially. In other words, they're getting energy back through photosynthesis and they're starting that two-way street. And it's and also more protected against the elements. Once that cuticle yes. forms, then it can handle that hotter weather that's right around the corner. Yes. Um, once it gets to that point, and typically the time frame that we have here in, in, Cal in California, or at least in San Jose, is that they will start to come out uh, right in February, and it depends on the year and whatnot, but it's kind of, kind of usually a bit, little bit later in February. And then they harden off, certainly all of them are going to be hardened off by the time April runs around. Uh, it's also the time when flowering occurs on these trees, and you start getting uh, uh, the catkins and, and uh, uh, the, the male flowers and whatnot coming out, and, and then the fruit the uh, acorns start to form on the uh, on the trees and whatnot, but usually I wait until probably the uh, May time frame through. Well, that's that's the starting point. You ha you have to look at the individual tree, but I will start then doing whatever I have to as far as uh, cutting back and and uh, trying to get them to send out new shoots from any given place. Also. There's a time frame that I like to kind of refer to as a natural time for doing things like um, cutting back, but as well as, as defoliation. And we discussed the defoliation a little bit earlier when we were comparing it with the black pines and what they discovered early, not early on, but, you know, 100 years ago or 80 mm -hmm. years ago, whenever it was, um, that uh, certain insects would attack a uh, the pine candles at a certain time and just defoliate them, just completely kill them off. 
And yet, after a certain amount of time after this has occurred, the voracious insects that had been eating this whole thing, um, they went to a different stage in their development and they were no longer in the eating stage, they were in the, in, you know, going on from there. And uh, they were no longer anything that could uh, harm the tree. Uh -huh. And what happens is that the tree has learned how to, at this particular time, to be able to repair itself and send out brand new leaves. Right. And so they got, and they, someone observed this enough that they tried it out and everything worked very well. The same type of thing can happen with an oak tree. Uh, you can have uh, predaceous uh, insects of one type or another that will absolutely strip a tree, completely uh, denude it, and completely take everything off of the thing. And then again, that particular insect will progress in its stages and it's no longer harmful to the uh, tree. And it sends out new leaves. That's when at certain times of year, and I'm not saying every year because this doesn't happen every year to the trees. Right. Uh, I would say that you would do this once every maybe three years if you want to. And then there's some circumstances for when you do it and don't do it, but I'll, I'll go on uh -huh. from here. I like to time that around the summer solstice. And that's usually around June 20th, 22nd, somewhere in there. Yep. And the reason I do that is because this is the time when you're at optimal uh, daylight hours you have the most sun that you're going to have all year. And uh, this is a typical time for, for things to continue to grow. As you get later in the season, as you get a month or two months later, all of a sudden things start to slow down a little bit. The heat might still be there because you're getting into August and September, but the actual growth potential of the tree is different. If you defoliate, for instance, um, infrequently, like I say, maybe once every two, three years, and only on strong trees, yeah. trees that have already shown that they're, they've got lots of leaves, that they're hardened off, that everything is go cooking well on that particular yeah. tree. If you do it every two or three years, you're going to be able to, at the same time, cut back and defoliate that tree. And sometimes it's only a partial defoliation because you want certain shoots that are coming from the inside to actually reach the outside so that they can survive because it'll get pretty dense in there and it'll just shade things out if you keep them small again. But if you do this during this time period, you can get a very good uh, response. And usually I'm talking between two, three weeks, all of a sudden you're getting the buds are swelling and in some cases shoots are already coming out with new leaves in the area that were just defoliated. Right. So we can take that off. So the way that I defoliate is I cut it all the way back into the petiole, which is the attachment of the leaf and the actual um, twig. And it's that it's a very small, yeah. small petiole in in the case of a, an oak, unlike a uh, maple, which has much longer petioles. Does plucking the leaf cause damage and hurt the buds? As if you pull it and you can damage, you can damage the connection. Yeah. But uh, so I typically cut them. Yeah. Um, in some cases, uh, and in most cases, you'll notice that when the new growth has come out and usually this occurs in, for instance, on a cork oak during the summer. When a new <clears throat> growth comes off, 
the old growth just starts to die. It starts to brown out, and the inside leaves just kind of go away. This is, a again, hormonal type of thing where it's just it's confident that it's got new growth coming out, and it can let go of the old stuff. Right. And so this is a natural operation. And so, and so talking about this, there's a time frame that you can do almost any of these operations that's going to work for it. But if you let that go too far, you can pass the point at which you're improving the tree and now you've got to cut back way in because things have died back inside. Right. So that you, you have that time frame in order to do it so that you can improve the tree. And if you do it too soon, it's a problem. If you do it too late, it's a problem. So how again, that's too what late. you learn. Hmm? So that solstice was about a month ago. And yeah. so now we're in late July. How late do you stop pruning oaks? I would say at the end of this month, that's say August 1st, I'm done. Yeah. I think that's about the right time. And would you still defoliate this late or would you only do that a little bit earlier, ideally? Ideally, I would do it earlier, but when you have a certain number of them, you only have so much time and you have yep. to do, you know, deal with the time that you have. Uh, of course, the, the way to solve that is not have as many trees. I'm still working on that part. Yeah, I'm still working on that too. Do um, you come back and prune again in fall? Yes. You can continuously do that, uh, once, that uh, once you get to that point. What you can't do is defoliate again. Yeah, because no. then you are <laughs> then you are really risking the losing stresses. a lot of it, yeah. and you're overstressing the tree. What we're trying to do is we're trying to understand how the tree will react, and from trying to do this over and over again and losing things, uh, you understand that uh, the tree will tell you exactly what what it feels about what you just did. Yeah. In some cases, it'll give you you know it'll roar right back. In some cases, it'll just Take so what your makes favorite branch and go. Hmm? So I worked on a cork oak that's really healthy. Yep. And my cork oak, this oak always starts growing usually around April 1st every year, sometimes a little bit later than that. The corks yep. are a little later than the live oaks. They're, they're six to eight weeks late. Yep. And then, so my pruning is usually a little bit delayed as well. Mm -hmm. And I noticed the top, they're very apically dominant, especially yes. when it's a big healthy tree. Yes. Do you have any tricks for keeping the top under control? Because the two things I see are you can do the pruning back you want to do. You'll get the buds where you want. And additionally, you'll get tons of shoots right out of the cork, out of the trunk, all over the top of the mm -hmm. trunk when the tree's happy. Well, you asked this question <clears throat> or a question like that yeah. uh, a little bit earlier. We were talking about cutting back hard cutbacks. In other words, you're cutting back to wood as opposed to cutting back to buds that already exist. Yep. And... I don't have a lot of fear of doing that with most of the oaks that I have dealt with uh, because as long as you make the cut, and I'm talking about into wood, into hard wood, where you can actually see the growth rings in it. Yeah. When you cut back into something that's larger, and many times we have to do that. When we collect, when we collect, I hate to go off on a tangent like this, but when we collect, uh, we're always going to be cutting those things off. Yeah. We're always going to be going back to those woods. and. The thing about doing it at that point is that if you're collecting a tree, take it back exactly where you want that tree to start budding out. Don't say, well, I can cut back later. It's at its strongest point when you take it out of the ground. It has been growing just like it wanted to without any interference from somebody like you. Yeah. And it is just feeling 
full of itself. All of a sudden, it's it's got all this energy and no place to go, and it will send out uh, shoots from bark and thick enough that you would think it could never get through there. It just comes through and it starts making a branch. And I've developed a number of trees that are based on that, yeah. uh, whether it's a cork bark or whether it's a regular, you know, a, a coast live oak or a, a canyon live oak or a, 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 an oak from Labata from the valley. Uh, they will all give you that initial shot. If you don't do it at that point, you will kick yourself in 10 years by saying, oh, if only I had cut back farther. Because so. you're just getting the tree stronger again to withstand the big cutback. That's right. So you found that there's just no hesitation to do hard cutback when you collect? You are trying to accomplish something with that tree. And what you're saying to the tree is do or die. When you take it out of the ground, you're basically saying that anyway. It's a gamble. It's a gamble. Yeah. Anytime you take it out. I've had trees that have had wonderful uh, root systems that have, have been really nice root systems that have just died. And they, they have just gone away. And I can't explain that because their next door neighbor, where, where the roots were so far away, or the, the absorbing root tips were so far away, and all you had were these huge, you know, two-inch uh, yeah. roots that were coming out just form new root systems that are just to die for. Yeah. You know, they're almost like a weed. And there's really no telling from one tree to the other how it's going to react. But overall, I found that if you if you show the tree exactly where it, what it, you want it to do and don't pussyfoot around mm -hmm. and really do it, then it will reward you by budding out where you need to have it budded out. And then you can develop it from there. And is that for both roots and branches yes. at that point? Yes. So if you need to get it in a pot, you might as well do that big cut at collection time. That's right. And yeah. remember that when you're taking a tree out of out of there, we were talking about this earlier. If you if you use pumice as your primary mm. uh, soil component when you're actually trying to get roots, you got lots of aeration there, and and oxygen is absolutely necessary for forming new roots. Yeah. You got to have it in there. Which means that as you water, you're pushing the water and you're drawing uh, air, oxygen, right behind it. Yep. So it's got right back into the soil. And this, this renewal of that whole oxygen system is really important for driving growth. Well, so that's good to know. Have you found a magic time for collecting oaks? <clears throat> there have been times when I've collected in the fall and times when I've collected in the spring, and times when I've had to collect something in the middle of summer, just because they were gonna trash the tree and you yep. you get it now or you don't get it. I found that typically your springtime is your best bet. But I've also found that you can do it in fall, but relying on one thing, you have to have had some rainfall probably two, three weeks before that, and it has to soak in and get into the system of the tree. In California, we're used to drought situations, and, and most of the time you're not going to get any rain um, during the summer. I mean, any rain. You might get have dry lightning strikes that start fires, but you're not going to get any actual moisture out of that. Right. <clears throat> the cloud is the closest thing we get to rain. Yes, here. there's a cloud. This yeah. is a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But situationally, you, you're going to... <clears throat> You need to have the tree hydrated and operating at peak 
at a peak when you collect it. Gotcha. So if you had to, let's say that you ha you knew that they were going to take this tree out and it's the middle of summer or something, start watering it about three weeks ahead of time or right. a couple of weeks ahead of time. Let that water start getting into the system right. so that it's more able to take the the torture you're going to do to it. Well, you know, that, by that actually off. makes a lot of sense, just knowing how that's kind of what determines when they're going to be growing in spring. It's how they determine so many, whether or not they grow at all, mm -hmm. is are they pumped up? Have they had a good meal? Have they had a good draft of water? Have they yeah. have they prepared for what's lying and ahead? What stimulates that? Well, what stimulates it for almost any tree? It's, it's a combination of sunlight hours and moisture and temperature and all these things click into line and all of a sudden it says, okay, I'm ready, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to go. That's when it does it. And each year is different. Yes. And it's getting worse, unfortunately, here for, for us in, in California because the droughts are getting longer and uh, worse. Just... Yeah, winter doesn't always look like winter. And yeah. so, oh, that actually reminds me of something weird. I doubt you have this issue in San Jose, but we find it up right around the bay up north the first sh first flush of growth comes out in spring hardens off does great and then the trees usually start growing again on their own a second flush will happen anywhere may june july typically almost a hundred percent of the time that second flush will all the new tips will get powdery mildew and those new shoots will die a third flush tends to be successful. And I don't know how much of that is our June gloom when it's a little foggier, a little cloudier, a little higher humidity, but I go way out of my way not to overhead water. Actually, that's another thing. I'm curious if you can overwater, overhead water your oaks down here. I avoid that when there are new shoots because powdery mildew is just on it like that up in Alameda. I don't have that kind of a problem here in, in San Jose. And part of it is because of how dry it is yep. relative to its, its proximity to water. Even though it's salt water that's out there, it's moisture that's coming up and it's, it's uh, we don't have that. And like all of the oaks in the, uh, in the East Coast and in the Midwest, you know, a lot of them are in areas that, that get good, uh, good water, but there are areas that go through the same kind of thing that we have here. You know, this, this right. Mediterranean type of not much going on in the summer from the standpoint of water. Whereas I can remember when I lived in near Chicago, you know, summer, it could rain just as often as it does in the winter. It's just a little yeah. bit warmer. Right. But we don't have the mildew problem, and I don't use overhead anyway. I found that it is, it is impractical to water a canopied tree uh, from overhead. Because yeah. it protects itself. I'm and mostly you've heard of tempted drip because uh, mm -hmm. oaks get more spiders on them than anything. And sometimes they get some, um, a woolly-ish aphid that will uh, be in those cracks of the leaves. And so for those two reasons, I would love to be able to blast them off more. And I do occasionally earlier in the day when it's hot so it evaporates as fast as yes. possible. And I, would, I wouldn't have any objection to doing that either. One of the problems that we have is that in San Jose, we have water that you can yeah. actually see on the leaves. I mean, it's got so many dissolved solids and the salts just kind of dry out as little white uh, residue residue yeah. on <laughs> everything. And um, so I, as a matter of fact, I've gone to a type of a uh, water filter that stops at least that part of it. It keeps the dissolved solids from forming on the leaves. And uh, so that's worked out. It's a, it's a garden hose and uh, a filter and it does very, very well. 
but I would not overhead water. I really think that each tree needs water separately. And a tree right next to it, if I've done the same operation, will, will act differently. And I can see that the soil is drier on one and on another. Now, here's another caveat. I don't think there are two trees in this entire backyard that has exactly the same soil. Different parts of of the soil that I have used at different times, the yeah. formulas change, and you learn, and you you adapt, and you do all kinds of things. So it's not not like it's uniform totally. As much as possible, I use the stuff that's going into it as uniformly as I possibly can. But again, it depends on the particular tree. The situation and the age that it's in and the size of the pot and the shape of the pot and a lot of different things uh, as to how I'm going to configure that soil. Right. And, you know, the one-third, 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 you know, the akadama and the, the pumice and the, and the uh, lava um, it, it may be great for, for conifers and do a very good job. But <clears throat> you have to augment that. You have to change it one way or another, either drying it out or... <clears throat> retaining more moisture uh, for any particular tree. Yeah. And so that changes and your formula changes on that situation and year to year. Yeah. You know, the requirements funny, are different. I hadn't thought of it like that. We all know how to do the perfect job watering. A beginner can water as well as an expert if they take the time to check the soil of every single tree. The only thing you really need to learn is what the dry point is. And the dry points do change from species to species. But for oaks, I've found greater variability than possibly any of my other trees. Like a lot of the deciduous rosaleas, you're going to err on the side of keeping them wet. Junipers, pines, you're going to err on the side of keeping them dry. I'll have two oaks right next to each other. One of them I'll water every four days. One of them I'll water every single day. And it's not even always whether or not they fill the pots with roots. When they're rooted in, they're more likely to go through water much, much faster. But if you use a well-draining enough mix and the roots have good access to the various parts of the soil, even the Uri pot, they can dry out fast. Mm -hmm. Both can be healthy. Sick oaks hardly use any water at all. They'll just sit there for quite a while. But well, they're, they're, it's like any system. You know, yeah. when you're sick, it, sh it shuts it down. It's exhausting to be sick. Yep. And that same thing with, a, with, a, with, with those. As far as watering is concerned, and we went through this before, I have an orange watering can. And the neat thing about having it orange is it really shows up and it reminds me that there's a watering can out there for hand watering yeah. for specific trees. And some, some need it more than others. And usually if you have a sick tree, you better use the hand watering and use something that's really good for it. I have, because of the quality or the lack of quality of the water here in San Jose, uh, I've gone to uh, diverting water off of my roof and putting in and storing it in 32-gallon uh, uh, trash cans throughout the yard at various points, as well as other containers that I have for holding that. Unfortunately, this year, as we pointed out, very little water was coming off of the roof yeah. because it wasn't raining. But uh, this kind of water is excellent for things like um, azaleas or sick trees or... Uh, almost anything that is a, 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 a trident maple, uh, various things that really benefit by having good water. Yeah. Um, so you can do it that way. 
I was talking about hose end. This hose end, I'm still experimenting with, but I'm liking what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing uh -huh. those same marks that are on things. It says that it is, uh, it's, it's an ion transfer. What I'm, what I was always afraid of is that I'm putting salt in. I mean, right. literal, literal saline into the system, and, that, and that's apparently in this case, it's not happening. <laughs> You'd probably notice that pretty fast, You'd especially on the maples. Quick. Yeah you know, watering with salt water. But what I'm saying is that each one of these, it's easier when you're using a hose end on any of this, you are actually going from one to the other without a stop in the flow. And you, and you, so you're treating them almost the same. When you carry it around and it's heavy and it's in your hand, you put the water on and because you have to fill the can up all the yeah. time, you, you put on the water that really it needs and you stop. You you pull that back and you go on to the next tree, check it out, and then water that particular one. It's an so, inherently deliberative task. It is. I can remember when I was with Tokita in, in uh, Japan and uh, I, I, had the, I, I really wanted to help. I really wanted to help him out. So <laughs> he would water in the morning. So I'd get up early in the morning and, and try to beat him out there so that I could water. And he finally stopped me and said, JT, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but you don't know what you're doing. And I said, well, I was watering the trees. And, and of course, this is going from Japanese to English yeah. and, and you know the inherent problems there. And he finally convinced me that the trees aren't treated the same. You don't just flood everybody. And that, that takes everybody a long time to really grasp that whole idea that the water needs are different on these trees. And you can't, and that's why using a hose is dangerous too. Yeah. Because you tend to use it in the same manner on everything, and you don't stop between trees. It's a continuous stream. Also, you use yeah. a lot more. I couldn't, I couldn't oh, use Oh, you waste so much water. You waste so much water yeah. doing that. And I agree. I find that most gardens I visit way overwater their trees, often to the tune of double the frequency that I would recommend, yeah. very commonly. Because yeah. it's easier to just throw some water on than, than do anything else. It's faster yeah. and it's easier. Right, and we were talking about pathogens and we were talking about uh. molds and we were talking about a number of other things and most of the problems that you're going to have with an oak really when you get right down to it are are usually moisture type of problems they're going to be water mold fungi like uh, pythium uh, phytophthora uh, uh, our malaria milaya the the root uh, the oak root fungus all kinds of things but they're water oriented yeah. And it's usually because the water is uncontrolled in a certain area and it becomes a little anaerobic and these things start taking over. Yeah. Uh, the pathogens are always there. Uh, Phytophthora, all these things are in the soil. They're endemic in California. You can find it every, everywhere. Yeah. But they start to really show up when you have too much water, when you have too moist a situation. And that would include uh, fog and that type of thing for trees that aren't used to fog. Right. Coast live oak can get along with uh, with uh, most of these kind of situations with no problem. You put a cork oak in there, and that really creates a problem. Right. 
it's just slightly different. They still grow along a coastline, and uh, you know, in Portugal and in, in the whole Mediterranean area, but it's different. They want a little more heat. They want a little bit more heat. Yep. And the coolness, and the thing is, a lot of this is coolness. And when it's winter, you don't see much problem with any kind of molds or you don't yeah, see problems true. with anything because the temperature, the ambient temperature, is not good for the mold itself. It's when it gets to that Goldilocks time frame when when things yeah. are just, you know, there's a little bit too moist, much moisture and it's nice and warm. And they just kind of cuddle up and start destroying your tree. Which unfortunately has been our entire spring this year. It's like not warm <laughs> enough to burn them off. It's been like in the mid, yeah. you know, 70s, which is like perfect for your water molds. It makes them very yeah. happy. Yeah. yeah, I've noticed. So the leaves will get, you'll see the... Um, the wasp, the little galls on the leaves, the centipede yeah, the wasps. Centipede wasps. And yeah. you'll see a lot of anthracnose on the leaves. Mm -hmm. And then some spotty <clears throat> funguses once in a while. You see all over the Oakland Hills, every other tree will have yeah. spots on it. Yeah. And then insect-wise, I've seen that. I don't know if it's a woolly aphid or an adelgid-like thing. It's a little cottony white growths you'll see in the leaves. That's the one yeah, insect on the I leaves, most actually, commonly yeah. see. Well, actually, I have a book on galls of oak galls in california and it's fascinating because some of them are beautiful they're just really gorgeous they're fascinating and essentially what what they are is a, an insect in this case a particular type of wasp with a little tiny you can't even see them oh they're right? super tiny they're super tiny um they'll they'll sting and actually lay eggs in a particular leaf or on a twig or on a branch or something along in those lines and the reaction tissue that the the tree uh, produces covers that over in very colorful ways in many in many cases yeah. creating a kind of pyramid or a where there's a little crypt inside that's hidden away that other insects can't get through to or they're led into chambers that that take them yep. nowhere i mean this is just like watching the mummy it's when, science when fiction. you think about this this is yeah. it's really kind of fascinating but some of them, some of them on the blue oaks are just like pieces of coral that mm. grow on there. They're gorgeous. They're, and then you see everybody's seen the apple oak uh, uh, galls. Right. And they're about the size of an apple. They're not that color. They're kind of a yellowish, kind of brownish, nasty-looking thing. But they have their uses, too. They used to make ink out of them, you know, so they no, refine that down. There's a... There's a lot of frivolous information that you learn about any species once you get into it. But... These wasps, uh, you know, put these galls on there. The same thing with uh, anything else. A tree is able to protect itself under ideal conditions. If there's physical damage, somebody runs a car into it. Yeah. Uh, somebody uh, uh, cuts it off. A limb breaks off. All of a sudden, they're exposed to pathogens, whether it be uh, uh, molds and, and, and uh, bacteria or anything else. Or it's insects to get, actually get inside. Yeah. And a lot of times, insects bring the disease with them. And yep. so they help to spread that too. That's why I really suggest that any time that you're making any sizable cut, if you're not just making a little tiny cut, that you treat that with, with a uh, uh, some type of uh, uh, protectant, whether that is cut paste that is a, a putty type of thing. And usually I'll do that when it's an inline type of thing where it can actually grow and, and cover over uh, that. 
or if it's a terminal, I'll use the liquid because I want it completely sealed up. Uh. And all you're doing is you're you're compartmentalizing that thing before the tree compartmentalizes it. Uh-huh. And it, because what happens when it sees a a wound on the tip or on any part of the tree, it'll stop the normal flow of of moisture of of uh, sap and and water and whatnot that's going through that area and actually put a fence around it, a chemical fence that uh, is impenetrable. But there's a time frame there before that starts that these pathogens can get in. And that's where you get into these problems where you get something invading the interior of your wood and it can eat it out and you're not not even realizing that. And that's why even if you just use um, Elmer's glue, Elmer's glue is fine. Well, that's what we were using in Japan. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't one of these fancy things that cost you an arm and a leg and comes out of a bottle that always dries up at the tip. Yep. We were we were using uh, grade school glue, but it worked because it it took care of that time frame that we were dealing with. Well, so how do we reconcile cut paste on moderate sized wounds on oaks when we're carving deadwood into the trunks? I have an oak out there that has a lot of deadwood in it, you know, large parts, and it's dying. It's just taking its time doing the dying. And I can show that to you once we get out there. It was a nice tree. It was a great tree. It came from a a client of mine uh, that uh, has since passed away. And um, I think Boone even saw that and said, you know, that's never going to be a bonsai. I think by that, what he meant there was that it's never going to survive as a bonsai. Right. Because it had interior problems that were going to eventually eat it away. It's kind of like a cancer that's inside, and it just kind of eats away at things. And I've noticed on this particular tree that very thing is going oh, on. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it was interesting. And at first I thought, well, you know, we can do something with this. Yes, you can on a temporary basis, but enjoy it while you can. Yep because there's something fundamental that's going on in that tree that you can't control. That's the best way I can put it. And, that, and we've seen that in every species of bonsai at yeah. some point or another. Yeah. No, there, there's so many interesting things. I think one of the things that I would continue to emphasize is that there's no bottom to the amount or top or limits to what you can learn about any kind of tree and what you think you know you probably only partially know mm-hmm. and maybe in some cases you're you were just lucky <laughs> no but you, you you need to constantly be refreshing that and not not feel like you can't change your mind about something don't get too attached too to what to you it. know yeah. yep that's good advice in life in general oh yeah yeah but and enjoy every day. We were talking about that because five years from now, you can look back at today and say, God, I wish I'd done more. Yeah. I'll just keep, keep working at it. Well, that's a good point about how deep it is. The, one of the things I most wanted to talk about today, we'll clearly have to postpone for our next conversation on the topic, oh. is the styling of oaks and how we make them look like the way they do because oaks are not only an extremely characteristic shape, but an important one for bonsai because so many broadleaf evergreens end up taking oak-like forms and depending on what where you live in the country oak-like form can mean something very very different because an 80-foot red oak is not going to look like a coast live oak is not going to look like a scrub oak 
in any circumstance. And yet we borrow characteristics from each of these species when mm -hmm. we're styling our mm -hmm. boxwood or other, or maybe our yopan hollies or these other trees that can so easily go into or take on an oak-like form. Right. But, well, we can cover that one next time. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm good to go with that. Because there's a lot, there's a lot to that, and even the same tree, in different circumstances, is going to look a lot different, depending on its environment. That's right. Let alone how we style them, the different approaches yep. to growing them, the different stages. Okay, I hadn't realized we had that much to go through with oaks, but clearly we do. Okay. Well, any other oak-like things you'd want to share today? This has been awesome. Um. No, I'm pretty drained. I'll, I'll remember something <laughs> in about half an hour after you leave. Perfect. We'll put that on the list for next time. Okay, let's do that. Well, thank you so much for joining. Well, I, I appreciate it and had a lot of fun and hope to do this again. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.